You're listening to Informed, informal chats about theological topics to help us know and understand God together. Informed. Informed. Hi everyone, Simeon here. Welcome to Informed. And uh, today I'm sat down actually physically in the flesh with one of my guests, uh, Emily, my wife. Hello, Emily. Hello. Uh, And on the other end of Zoom is Mr. Matt Fell. Hello. I'm, now you said it like that, I feel awkward. Like I'm, I'm third wheeling on a date here. <laughs> um, no, uh, that's as, as will become evident in this podcast, you are not the third wheel on this topic. <laughs> okay, I'll take your word. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking today about um, the doctrine of God because uh, the three of us were all at uh, the Think Conference back in July 2020, which... Uh, Andrew Wilson runs every year but in last year it was uh, on Zoom obviously and uh, the topic was the doctrine of God. So in a few moments we'll get into what that is all about Um, but we're recording this before any of these uh, episodes have yet been published and so what Emily and Matt don't know is that at the start of the episodes I like to uh, put them on the spot and ask them to tell us in a minute why are you a Christian? So would you like to go first? Could you tell us in a minute, why are you a Christian? That is so unfair that you hadn't prepped me. And also that I go first. (laughs) Deferential treatment to your wife. (laughs) Why am I a Christian? I am a Christian because because of Jesus. Um, Because when I began to think about him seriously and when I began to look at him, And when I first really listened to Christians talk to me about him, I just could not escape him. Um, It felt like he had me by the scruff of the neck. Um, And I think, you know, theologically, I was all over the place for a long, long time. You know, didn't believe in all sorts of kind of things that I would now consider to be key parts of what Christians believe. But I just could not escape Jesus because this was this was like the highest truth about everything and the love of God made flesh and it just he captivated me um and I wanted to follow him and know him and I trusted him um and there was no getting away from that as much as I tried and Mm -hmm. I did (laughs) wonderful what about you Emily Uh, how can I follow that that was amazing (laughs) Um, so I guess my answer is quite different um that when I was quite young, I was living in a broken home and um, my dad, who I lived with, wasn't a Christian, but my mum was, who I visited. Um, And so I think at that time, it was quite a vulnerable time. You know, things were uncertain and it was, you know, it was sad being in this situation. And and God met me. Um, I was playing um, on my own and I heard the audible voice of God and I saw a vision of him and another time I saw a vision of Jesus and at that point um, I guess I couldn't argue with that Um, you know there was all these different things around me all these different things different people were telling me but I felt God call me and it was it was such a deep experience that um, that I was his you know I, I he called me and you know he gave me the gift of tongues at the age of eight and said pray to me in that language don't play with it pray to me with it and um throughout my teenage years um there was a sweet um a sweet 
what's the word, um, communion with him. I felt like I could feel his presence really powerfully um, at a time, yeah, when there's all sorts of uncertain things, people at school are into smoking and whatever, and you, you're trying to work out what your life is about. And he, um, he kept me through that time and yeah, kept me close to him through that time. So yeah. Brilliant. That's wonderful. Yeah, great answers, both of you. Thank you. Um, right, now, now something that Matt might be a little bit more prepared to talk about. <laughs> so, Matt, the doctrine of God, um, I'm not sure that I'd heard that phrase until a year and a half ago uh, when, when the conference topic was announced. Um, it sounds funny. Surely all theology is about God. What do we mean when we say the doctrine of God? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, okay. I wonder if I answer it by kind of a bit autobiographical um because I so I became a Christian and I th and I th and I I just we use this word God and we assume we know what it means <laughs> um we 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 talk about God and we have all kind of conjures up all sorts of ideas in our mind and there's this kind of highest authority all-powerful all-knowing that kind of stuff and that's a kind of fixed idea in our culture to some degree that God's like this super powerful headmaster in the sky, you know. And so you'd, people would refer to God as the big man or the one upstairs, that kind of stuff. And I think I, I, I just had that idea, you know, knocking around in my kind of conceptual toolbox when I became a Christian and, and never questioned it. I just thought, well, you know, that must be what these Christians are talking about. Um. And for a number of years, I think I never really kind of, I learned things about God from the Bible. You know, I learned that he was gracious. I learned, you know, I learned that he was just, I learned the things that he, you know, particularly stood against um, and the things that pleased him. But I never really examined what I meant by that word God um, and what, was it about the Christian God that was distinct from other gods? Um, mm -hmm. So a little later down the line, that shifted slightly when I picked up a book called The Good God by Mike Reeves. Um, and reading that almost felt like I was being born again, again, because uh, it's a wonderful picture of how our God is Trinity. Yeah. Uh, one God with three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. And it's such a wonderful, heartwarming book. And that helped me to some degree to think about a kind of distinctiveness about the Christian God. But then a number of years later, I, I think I probably started to think, I don't know what word is appropriate to use, but how is it? I started to think about questions like, how is God different to created things? Um, what is the relationship between God, the creator and his created things? Um, in what ways, and also start to think about the language we use about God and becoming and, and starting to give attention to that. You know, we say God is good, but I also say that game of rugby was good and this is a good chair. We say God is love, but I also talk about how I love pizza. Uh, what's going on there? And I started to pay attention to those things more and more. And so I think when we're talking about the doctrine of God, I think it's it's being attentive to some of the, to those sets of questions um and sometimes people separate it into two categories thinking about 
what God is. So I suppose that's a slightly more, I mean, it's, obviously it's a theological question, but it, it's also slightly more philosophical, mm. involving, you know, questions of being, ontology, that is, or metaphysics, you know, so kind of how does the physical and the immaterial relate to one another, those kind of questions. So there are the questions of, of what God is, God's nature, his essence, and then also those questions of God's character, who God is. That, that's my, I, that was probably a minute and a half long answer to your question. <laughs> that's great. So, so when we talk about the doctrine of God, we're thinking about um, what, what God is like, what, what, who, and, who or what God is, and um, how we talk about him. Yeah, that's a far more succinct way of putting what i just yeah, did i couldn't just that if you hadn't said what you just said so great great i think this is a wonderful friendship simeon <laughs> i waffle and you then make concise um emily when we went to the when we virtually went to the think conference last year what um so andrew had invited carl truman to um to teach on the doctrine of god of everything he said what kind of did you come away thinking ah oh, that's interesting or i need to think about that more or i never thought through that what what stood out for you oh that's a hard question because i i felt like i went to that conference um kind of wanting probably like this conversation <laughs> and he just went so quickly um and used so many big words that it was a bit tricky to follow along i think <laughs> Um, Fair enough. But yeah, I think I kind of went really kind of wanting to think more about who God is. How how do we know what what He's like? How do we? Where does the doctrine of God come from, really? Um, and He talked a lot about sort of how we how we view God in suffering, which mm. I found really interesting, and I hadn't kind of realised that that was an important topic to think through, really. We might get onto that later, I don't know. Yeah, well, let, let's go there because there was, I was quite, um, one of the things that really stuck in my memory was the uh, sort of question of what does it mean to say that God does or doesn't suffer? Um, so in a nutshell, I, I think, um, and Matt can correct me if I'm wrong, but what Carl was saying on that question was that um, uh, it's it's currently popular both amongst academic theologians and you know quote unquote well you know ordinary christians getting on with their christian lives to, to think about god as being a god who suffers um uh, and think about yeah okay there's a lot of evil in the world we suffer evil um but we can take comfort from the fact that god suffers too because of evil and it, it hurts him and it grieves him and and on the cross he he experienced that um per se uh, that's not the right phrase experience that you know um to to its greatest possible extent um as in like when jesus was on the cross he was separated from the father and and he suffered in that um in in the sense that he sort of bears the full brunt of the evil in the world um coming coming at him full force um but the in, the interesting thing to me was that um, unless we're very careful with 
our language, talking about God suffering can be actually a departure from Christian orthodoxy. Um, so why is that, Matt? Because that sounds weird to our ears to say we're not allowed to say that God suffers. Yeah, right. Um, so where to begin? <laughs> Historically, um, the church has adopted this um this understanding of god as being impassable um so the word impassable means about passions um and we we have to with a lot of this old language we have to kind of do an act of translating it yeah. into english um because <clears throat> you and i understand passions as things that we're interested in you know mm -hmm. emily you know is passionate about playing piano uh, you know, Simeon is passionate about um, going for long runs, or uh, <laughs> I don't think he is. That <laughs> one. Um, whereas in older vocabulary, passion essentially means those things that are, that affect us, which we're not in control of. Um, so, if you think about actually, if you think about the cross, that is known as Jesus's passion isn't yeah. it so he suffers something that happens to him um and so in the older language you know our passions are the things that we kind of don't seem to have control on which movers and affectors and historically christians and jewish theologians as well have said that god is impassable that he is not moved and affected by things that are beyond him as it were. Um, and this is kind of tied up with, I guess, the question of how God is distinct from the rest of creation, that mm. God is the creator of all things, you know, um, that everything that was made was made through God. Um, it's what John's prologue says. Um, and so because of that, God's relationship is one where you know he's sovereign over everything um creation depends upon him he doesn't depend upon it and so god doesn't suffer anything on account of creation uh, creation can't you know sneak up on god can't affect him can't in a, in a way that he doesn't see coming and so on and so forth so the idea of divine impassibility is that god um yeah, isn't rocked by things outside himself. But this kind of gets dismantled bit by bit as we kind of move into more modern history and particularly in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of reasons why that is. It's complex history and nerdy theologians love nothing more than to debate how that happened and to blame various things that they don't like in society. Um, I think a couple of things is, one, the 20th century just revealed suffering in a way that perhaps the human consciousness had never been aware of before, you know, after Auschwitz, you know, once you've seen those pictures, you know, of, of the atrocities that occurred, you know, evil, just the question of evil has a, has a new force, I think, in human consciousness. I think also we... Um, you know, we are perhaps, I don't know, maybe not more emotional than we've been before, um, but we, I'm not quite sure what it is, but some, I think something has, 
has shifted our emotional expectations from God. And so we want a God who is emotionally very responsive to us. Um, and I, th I think these things together, the kind of the, the question of evil in the world, um, and then maybe a kind of heightened sense of human emotion have led to this idea that, you know, if God is going to have anything positive to say about suffering, he must in some way experience it, grieve it himself. Um, does that, does that make sense? Maybe it's one of those moments where I need to stop talking and you can just clarify that or <laughs> ask me, ask me to go into a bit more depth there. Yeah, I think, so I was reading in um, Call the Midwife, this um, the, no the novel that sort of started the TV series and um, just a couple of stories about um, the workhouses in the sort yeah. of 19th century, early 20th century. And I mean, they floored me. I was sobbing reading these stories um, and just like couldn't get my head around how you know, that's even before Auschwitz, like just that, that individuals were going through horrific things where institutions were like treating them like in, like they weren't human beings um, just because they had become poor, probably because they'd lost their father to death and then they couldn't sustain themselves kind of thing. Um, and by the end, I sort of started to think, well, I'm sobbing in empathy towards this situation. Does that surely the divine must be sobbing in empathy like he the all the empathy that i can muster here can only be a shadow of him either that or he's a crazy weird bad god or you know either he's like yeah so it's just it, it actually made me more confident that there must be a god and that he must be compassionate yeah. um through that process which was surprising to me so then if you're then if we were then going to say oh well, he can't be grieving about that that wouldn't make sense to me um and I've got a song that I'm just trying to do a recording of and I've got a line in it saying like um no matter how hard it is your spirit can your kindness can be seen your spirit's here grieving with us and I want to know am I allowed to write that song <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, want to put anything you know incorrect into yeah I mean that's that's a really good way of putting it um and I think let's let's make the problem even harder before I then try to defend this idea of impassibility. You know, open scripture, you know, talks of, in the prophets about how Israel grieved the Lord's Holy Spirit, um, you know, or God in the Old Testament is provoked to jealousy, um, you know, and regretted creating before. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Genesis 6, God regrets uh, creating human beings, you know, uh, was working on some teaching earlier on on, on uh, the Exodus stories um, around chapter 30, uh, 32 to 34, where Israel build the golden calf and God's anger burns hot and he's going to destroy them. You know, uh, on a, on a it, you know, it seems almost like a no brainer if you open the, the Bible God is emotionally very responsive. Mm. So, so how do we start to make, you know, sense of this stuff? Well, um, where to begin? Let's think. It, it comes down to this question of, of the 
of God being the creator and his relationship with all things because of that. Because God is the creator, um, creation depends upon him. He doesn't depend upon creation. He knows all things within the created world because he made all things. Nothing, therefore, blindsides him. Nothing creeps up on him that he doesn't know about. So God doesn't learn anything. God doesn't change because he already is the fullness of goodness and beauty and love and perfection. Um, He doesn't. When God, the God of scripture, when he creates, he creates out of out of love, out of generosity, not out of need. Um, And so so we have to remember that. And we also have to remember to avoid idolatry. You know, it's there in the Ten Commandments. You know, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. You will have no gods, other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images of me. You can't you so right there in the Ten Commandments in God's revelation to Israel, we are forbidden from making pictures of God based upon created things. And that includes ourselves and our emotions. You know, God says again and again in the scripture, he goes, you know, am I a man <laughs> that you're going to compare me to yourself? You know, I, my thoughts are not the same as yours. So we have to we have to remember that and have that that posture. And then we need to work through a few questions. So, Emily, you had that very uh, admirable response to reading about the workhouses. Yeah, mm-hmm. that you empathy and love welled up in you but you had to learn about that in order for to have that response didn't you yeah um you know you yeah it 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 was something which occurred once you discovered something you didn't already know god doesn't have that experience you know there's no no nothing happening in creation that he is unaware of Um, and so God, when we talk about God not having any passions, we're not saying that, um, we're not saying that he doesn't have a, have a heart, that he doesn't relate to those situations. We're saying that the way he relates to them is completely different to the way you and I do. In comparison, you and I are, are fickle. You know, we um, one minute we move to the next, we we forget and it's gone. Whereas God is constant in his 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 relation to his creation. Um, And it would be problematic. You know, if God, you know, didn't know how to love until um, until, you know, something occurred that taught him how to if that makes sense mm. like if god you know is is responding spontaneously to the situation in outfits or in the workhouse um yeah. you know he's having to become something and so in a sense in a very strange sense he almost needs that thing to teach him how to love in that in that account yeah whereas the christian account the biblical account is that god you know, doesn't he? He is who he is. He doesn't need creation to help him become 
what we want him to be if that makes sense yeah so so how does how does he care how does that what does that look like is is it that he knows it's coming in because he can see into the future and so that's why he's not surprised about something or well again i think we probably have to just be a little bit uh i guess cautious in how we talk about those things yeah. um because we're talking about the response of a being who's not in time um whereas you and i you know we experience and respond to things you know in the process of change um in time whereas so how we narrate how god responds to things is going to be very tricky <laughs> it's not going to be very easy uh for us to do um I wonder if I could pull out some some quotes by people who are much smarter than I am, because I think that that helps and reassure people that Fell's not just completely crazy. Um, <laughs> so let's 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 turn to to C.S. Lewis because um, you know can't really go wrong with C.S. Lewis, can you? I mean, he's the man wasn't perfect, but um, this is this is Lewis on this question. He says. The reason why God has no passions is that passions imply passivity and intermission. The passion of love is something that happens to us as getting wet happens to a body. And God is exempt from that passion in the same sense that water is exempt from getting wet. <laughs> God cannot be affected with love because he is love. Wow. Wow, drop the mic, C.S. Lewis. Absolutely, yeah. So we're not, you know, in, in, in saying that God's impassable, we're not saying that he is not loving or not compassionate. He, he is loving, he is compassionate. He, can we say empathetic? Um, yeah. Kind, merciful, gracious, uh, angry at sin, um, and so on. Because he's the definition of those things. And the source of those things. Yeah. And so it's like that is his that is his permanent, unchanging stance towards those things. He yes. permanently hates evil. He permanently loves his people. He permanently delights in his creation and so on. Um, and so he doesn't experience those things as quote unquote. Quote unquote. Um, but those things are a part of his very being. Absolutely. Yes. So this this is known as the the, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's I mean, it's one of the I once got Luke Sears to read a book on divine simplicity and he's not forgiven me for it. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think. And the of course, the irony is that, you know, this this idea is anything but simplistic. <laughs> um, the idea of divine simplicity. Um, essentially is that God uh, is not, um, he's not, he's not complicated in what, in his makeup. So, so let me give you three definitions of simplicity or of simple that you can find in the, uh, the Cambridge English Dictionary. I refuse to use the Oxford one. Um, so Cambridge <laughs> will give you three, three definitions of simple, readily understood or performed, that doesn't apply to God. God is not readily understood. 
Uh, he is the transcendent mystery that provokes worship, not easy understanding. Second definition of humble origin or modest position. Again, nope. nope. Let's try this one. Sheer, unmixed, free of complications. That applies to God. Um, God is what he is in a sheer, unmixed, free of complications manner. Um, God is all that he is. So God is good because he is the cause and definition of goodness. God is truth because he is the cause and definition of all truth. God is just because he's the cause and definition of all, of, of all justice. And he is all those things to the full, to the max, simultaneously. Um, in a way that, you know, you can't kind of, God's not like part justice, part mercy. He is, he is mm. the perfect harmony and definition of those things. Um, it's not like God's, do you remember when, you know, when, when we were children, I mean, I don't know what kind of households you were brought up in uh, as to what kind of telly you watched, but Power Rangers was something that I watched. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in Power Rangers, towards the end, for some reason, the bad guy always becomes ginormous. So the Power Rangers have to get their robots and there's like five different robots and they're lots of fun. But then eventually those five robots come together to make a giant robot and it, and it kicks off at that point. God is not like the giant Power Ranger robot made up of different parts. You know, God isn't part love, part justice, part goodness that you could separate off. He is those things all at the same time to the max. Um, Why is that important, Matt? Uh, that, that could sound like splitting theological hairs. If I believe that God's love and God's just does it matter how they're put together? Yes, it does. And I'm going to think about why that is. Um, it matters because you and I can have a concept of justice that is devoid of love. And yeah. we could also have uh, a notion of love that is devoid of justice. Yeah. Um, whereas god is is those things together um he holds those things together not so that they lose their meaning you know like when we talk about love as human beings we're we're, we're kind of coming at what at god from one angle as it were and we come talk about justice and that you know so i'm not reducing the meaning of those things i'm saying that god god is those things in, in perfect harmony together um i struggle to understand i struggle to reconcile justice and mercy you know similarly if you come to my house and steal my sausage sandwich i want a sausage sandwich back uh and i want that to be upheld um and i struggle to understand how i could be merciful how how i can uphold that and be merciful at the same time and when to do one and when the other but god has no dilemma there's no tension within himself between those things Hmm. So there's there's not a just bit of him that's kind of in competition with the love bit of him, and and they kind of you end up with sort of fifty percent justice, fifty percent love. Um, yep. 
yeah, yeah. absolutely so so swinging back to the question of impassibility like like you said earlier on Simeon, god is god is that love to the max continually um and so yes when we are suffering you know god god's love is deeply empathetic you know is um yeah i think it's okay to say it's grieving but we have to we have to kind of just understand what we're doing with those words um that we're you know we're not saying god's grieving in the way that we grieve you know mm. taken off guard um you know he's grieving because that suffering is objectively wrong and not how he created the world to be um yeah i really like i think the 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 thing i'm like the most from the conference was carl's picture of if you're if you've kind of go gone over a waterfall and you're tum sort of coming down with it you you don't want somebody to to come alongside you and fall down with you no and, oh, that's really horrible isn't it I'm, I'm empathizing with you you want a branch to come out of the rock face that you can grab onto that is solid and that you can hold fast to um, and that really was the image that I found most helpful in thinking yeah god god isn't one who just jumps into the river with you and but is essentially falling and can't help you he's the he's the solid one that you can who knows about it you yeah can yeah the, i mean the reason this matters is because only an impassable god can truly save us from suffering and death um you know because if ultimately even god himself suffers uh then it is most certainly the case that you and i will never be free of it as you in know. because in once jesus returns then suffering will never have won't be eradicated or... yeah because because if even god suffers um then you know there's always the chance even if god was to deal with the things that could provoke could cause him suffering there's still the chance that something might occur that you know he would suffer again Whereas if he is in and of himself completely free of suffering, then he is able to deliver us from that. Mm. As he kind of takes us into himself. Yeah. And puts all of the bad stuff out the door, out and shuts the door and deals with it. Yeah, absolutely. But what about the cross, Matt? I mean, you might have to give us a, a potted, <laughs> a potted <laughs> bit of um, uh, incarnation here. Because yeah. on the cross, surely there is a man on that cross suffering. Yes, is real, and it it came up on him, and it wasn't there, and then it was there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, not going to deny that because that lands me in a whole pot of heresy. Um, so, so in this in this in the creation since the fall. Um, there is there's suffering um there's brokenness and that exists because that is the consequence to sin you know god um hands his creation over to corruption and futility so romans 8 tells us um and that is god's wrath 
that's his judgment that's his declaration that sin is not okay and these are the consequences to it it's also god's way of calling creation back to himself c.s lewis again called suffering the presence of suffering in the world god's megaphone saying come back come back um So we, we live in a world in which there is death and decay and violence and sickness and all of these things. Um, but they but God doesn't intend for that to be the case. You know, even though um, even though he, he has afflicted creation under sin, he has put a curse upon it. Uh, you know, that's not that wasn't God's purpose in the beginning. That's not what he intends. He wants to uphold justice he doesn't want to just kind of you know hit the big reset button and, and ignore sin but he wants to he wants that that curse to ultimately bring people back to him and he wants to then come and heal them and restore the creation he made to be very good and to do that he enters into the creation himself in the incarnation not changing within his divinity but taking on human nature adding human nature to his divinity so in the incarnation the second person of the trinity the son unites human nature with his divine nature and so when you look at jesus walking around throughout history in space and time you are seeing a moving picture of what god eternally is like mm. and so when you see jesus you know welcoming in sinners this is what God is like in an unchanging manner. When you see Jesus weeping at his friend's you know, funeral, Lazarus's funeral in John 11, that is God's heart about all suffering. Um, when you see Jesus turning tables, you know, and getting angry, you know, in the temple, again, you're seeing Jesus manifesting in space and time God's unchanging heart. At the cross, Jesus in his humanity is suffering our, well, he's, he becomes sin, doesn't he? You know, he associates with us in our sin and receives the consequences of sin in, in all their fury and fullness. So, you know, Jesus, he is, you know, he's a, he's a political victim being tortured and executed by imperial powers uh, he's forsaken by people he is known and trusted and loved uh, he endures violence uh, he's dying and then the world goes black and he is he becomes the god forsaken man you know he experiences us in our hopelessness and complete alienation from god and in that moment the divine life and love of God is entering into the brokenness of creation in order to heal it, to restore it. Um, and so as, as the early Christians loved to, to say in their sermons, by his death, he tramples death. Um, because the eternal life of God has touched that part of creation creation is most fragmented and broken and you know essentially far away from god god has gone there to to heal it on our behalf um 
He's taking the divine judgment on sin upon himself in order to make a way through it. And then, of course, in the resurrection, the door has opened. Uh, you know, one has gone through the valley of the shadow of death and he's out the other side and he's now able to shepherd us through it. Um, in, in that experience of the cross, is, is God suffering? Because Jesus is God and Jesus yes. is suffering. So there, I think there's two ways to answer this. There's a kind of technical answer in which no, God is not, is not suffering at the cross. And that's, that's so important because, because at the cross, this is God's life and love, his light shining into the darkness. And if the light is put out, the darkness isn't, oh, wins, the mm. darkness isn't overcome. But because the light of God is shining into the darkness, the love of God is going into this place of, of judgment. Um, there's resolution. There's, there's actually salvation. There's actually atonement that happens. Mm. Um, and so, so does, that, does that work because Jesus has two natures in yes. the one person, a divine nature and a human nature? The human nature suffers. The divine nature doesn't. Yeah. Which is not to say that the divine nature is not active. You know, the divine nature has taken Jesus to the cross. The divine nature sends him. You know, it's the father's will. The divine mm. nature in Jesus says yes, goes in obedience. And Hebrew says that actually the cross is effective because Jesus offers himself up in the eternal spirit. You know, by the Holy Spirit working in this moment. You know, this is a, a ransom that is provided for all people um, and so the divine life is at work the divine nature is at work but it's the human nature taken up as an instrument as it were to achieve this um, but so i said there's two ways to answer the question yeah, technically no the divine nature doesn't suffer but because the union of human and divine is is so perfect in christ uh, this is the doctrine of the hypostatic union that god unites these two natures in one person so the the person the divine person of the son of god the word of god unites human nature with his divine nature and and so when when on the cross it's the human nature that is suffering but it's the divine person that is doing the work and because of that because this union the church can come out with these kind of paradoxical poetic statements like the one who cannot suffer suffers and dies on your behalf you know the the immortal one tramples down death by his death um and so you, if you kind of pick up some old church fathers, you know, they, they live for that stuff. <laughs> These strange sentences that kind of um, get the paradox of what's going on, the mystery, but also celebrate the wonder of it. So when we opened up the topic of impassibility, I said that the idea that God could suffer is a departure from orthodoxy. Is that 
So is that too strong a statement? Can you be an Orthodox Christian and, and hold that, that God does suffer and, and you know, in, in the same sort of way that we do? Okay, so I think there's two kinds of heresy, broadly speaking. There's the conscious heresy where, you know, you, you intend to distort the truth of what, you know, scripture has delivered, revealed to us. And then there's the kind of, you know, unconscious heresy that we all commit on a daily basis the kind of idolatry we all do where we tend to make god like ourselves um you know mm. my yeah just unconscious work of assuming that god supports leicester city football club <laughs> prefers you know kind of indie folk music and all of that stuff um you know we all do those kind of things and i think you know there are very obvious reasons why it almost feels like instinctive to say God must suffer, you know, because of the emotional force of what we're saying there. You know, I think for 21st century people, that just seems very instinctive to us. So there's going to be lots of people listening to this, you know, who, you know, have, have probably done things like, you know, wrote cards for suffering thing, friends and said, God is suffering with you, you know, mm -hmm. and, and those kind of things. And, and if, that somebody listening you know i completely understand why they've said that um but yes i do think it is a departure from orthodoxy from what historically the church has prized and the reason i think that is because it, it does matter because of what we've just said about the cross you know that at the cross it is the one you know who has fullness of life in himself who does not suffer who lives in perfect bliss and abounding life, who, who, who pours that into the cross, into our death, into our suffering, in order to overcome it, in order to heal us of our situation. Um, and I, I, I always go back to the story of Jesus at the funeral of the woman who's a widow and her only son has died. You know, and in, in Jewish culture, it, it would have been unclean to go and touch the casket and yet jesus goes full of life touches the dead body mm. and imparts life to it and i think that's a picture of the whole incarnation and the atonement that god in his fullness of life comes and touches a dirty dying humanity and imparts life and cleanliness and healing and you know to it so is it a little bit like if you think about it in terms of warfare language God is waging war on the darkness and it's like he's coming in a Trojan horse he's got an ambush and he's he goes into the enemy encampment but what's coming out of that Trojan horse is life it is that army that's going to be successful love that image Emily yeah that's great absolutely is there anything else that um either of you <laughs> like to kind of chew over before we say goodbye to our listeners I mean I, I kind of come into this topic we had a conversation the other week Matt, about how do you know what God is like? And I mean, this all sounds really great. I'd quite like to have a God like this who can help, you know, who can be there for me and whatever. So where is our certainty? Where, what's, what, where does that come from? Um, because like you said, right at the beginning of the podcast, the um, episode, Matt, that, you know, people have got, they've got this idea of the man upstairs. Um, I've certainly heard a lot of people say, well, um, as long as I'm, you know, a good person, then 
at the end of, you know, if God does exist and he'll see that I lived with good intentions and that'll be good enough. Um, so, and actually in Romans 1, it talks about um, people have got these ideas of what God is like. Um, so, it, it, you know, we're, we're full around us of people's different ideas of what they've got in their minds. Um, so, yeah, where where does that certainty that this is, you know, the God that we've been talking about, that this is what he's really like? Because there's, you know, other many other philosophies out there, many other religions with different versions of their, you know, what they think if there's a god what he's like uh, gosh emily i mean that's such a good question and such a huge question um and you know it'd be it'd be great to say you know go read this verse in the bible and it will tell you everything you need to know about who god is um in a way which will leave you with no questions afterwards <laughs> um i think as, as we read scripture there's a lesson to learn um, and I think I think it's there in, in Exodus um, that God is so much greater and more mysterious than we can fathom. And we are more sinful and idolatrous than we realize. <laughs> um, and so you have these two things, you know, so when God reveals himself to Moses, you know, he reveals himself as I am who I am. And essentially, it's a bit of a hands off to Moses, um, you know, because when Simeon goes to a party, you know, he says, hi, I'm Simeon. I'm of the Dries. I'm married to Emily. I live in Cambridge. I'm an elder of City Church. He he gives us a bunch of things to kind of hang our understanding of Simeon upon. Whereas God, when he introduces himself to Moses, kind of says, I am who I am. You know, I define who I am. You can't pin me down in some other category i'm not the god of thunder or cheese sandwiches um, <laughs> i'm i am who i am um, and so and we're a hundred percent dependent on revelation yes we can't we can't um figure him out at least we can't figure him out in any depth from the things we see around us or what we can figure out well yes and no because to, to some degree you know, scripture will say in a number of places, Romans 1, Psalm 19, um, that there are things that we can know about God from the world around us. So yes. his, his divine power, um, his power and, and divine nature. I think that's what how Paul puts it in Romans. Um, so there are things that we can kind of get to know and think about God. But ultimately, yeah, this we have this this problem and again it's there in romans one where we tend to to make god like other things either like ourselves um you know or in pagan societies like the world around us you know we make god like the thunder or the sun or whatever it is mm. uh, we're getting you know us uh, that is helping us um so you know i, th I think scripture teaches us that we have to be we have to be careful to avoid idolatry to be attentive to revelation but even when we're reading scripture to not um i guess not to twist it or to 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 assume that we know what it means upon first reading for example 
Um, you know, there are many times and places that God communicates himself and he's doing it as an act of accommodation. You know, when, when God declares himself to be our rock, we don't think, you know, he's a lump of granite. Um, you know, we, we, we take certain things from that and we, we lose other things. And this, this is, philosophically, this is known as negative theology. It's the negative moment in our thinking about God where we, we remove, we subtract from our understanding of God to create creaturely things. Um, so when we read that God is a rock, we know that he's not a static, lifeless thing. Mm. Or when we read that God, you know, uh, uh, was, was, was it in Genesis 6 where it says, you know, God regretted that he made human beings. Yeah. Well, again, we have to do that moment of negative thing, negative theology of subtracting from that, you know, creaturely things. Um, so and be careful not to make God in our image in that moment. God regretted making human beings like Matt regretted putting too much mustard in his sausage sandwich. Um, this is one of the magnificent blessings of the incarnation, isn't it? That in Jesus, God reveals himself to us. And what we might have 101 philosophical questions, um, but we have a we have a fixed point, which yeah. is Jesus. And, you know, he's not just he's not just born because, well, he he had to be born because he had to die. Um, that's true. Um, but the incarnation is so much gives us so much more than an atoning death because it, it also gives us a revelation of the God that we would we would only be blindly feeling our way towards if he Absolutely. hadn't been up to us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the incarnation is the kind of climax of all of God's revelation. So, you know, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself kind of as a, as a, as a human counterpart to us. Um, you know, he talks about my hand. My hand is not too, too short. Uh, you know, he talks about his, you know, emotional life. You know, I'm, I'm jealous. I'm, I'm grieved over this. Um, and so the Old Testament kind of God is God is coming down to our level, even there to reveal himself to us. And it's kind of all preparing us for this moment when he actually truly does enter into history, takes on our human nature. Um, and, you know, Hebrew says in the past, God spoke for the prophets. You know, it was kind of secondhand knowledge, as it were. Whereas in the incarnation, you know, he has spoken to us through his son, um, you know, who's the exact imprint of his glory and nature. Um, you know, and so Jesus says to Philip, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Uh, you see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus weeping or, you know, dining with sinners. And there's no remainder in God. There's no kind of hidden extra bit which might still be a bit grumpy towards us no what you're seeing in jesus you know is the perfect um communication you know in through a created medium you know so you're, you're seeing a human being but this is the perfect you know revelation of who god is wonderful well that seems like a Excellent note 
on which to say thank you very much, Matt. Thank you very much, Emily. It's been wonderful to talk about these things. Um, so yeah, it's goodbye from me. <laughs> Am I saying goodbye from me? Is that the line? Goodbye from you. That is the line. Yes. <laughs> you just nailed that line. Matt. <laughs> now we just need Emily. Goodbye from me. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha